Part two, chapter five of The Patrician by John Goldsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter five. It was to Barbara that Bilton unfolded, if but little, the trouble of his spirit, lying that same afternoon under a ragged tamarisked hedge with the tide far out. He could never have done this if there had not been between them the accidental revelation of that night at Monkland. Nor even then, perhaps, had he not felt in this young sister of his the warmth of life for which he was yearning. In such a matter as love, Barbara was the elder of these two. For besides the motherly knowledge of the heart peculiar to most women, she had the inherent woman of the worldliness to be expected of a daughter of Lord and Lady Valleys. If she herself were in doubt as to the state of her affections, it was not as with Milton on the score of the senses and the heart, but on the score of her spirit and curiosity, which Courtier had awakened and caused to flap their wings a little. She worried over Milton's forlorn case. It hurt her too to think of Mrs. Knowle eating her heart out in that lonely cottage. A sister so good and earnest as Agatha had ever inclined Barbara to a rebellious view of morals, and disinclined her altogether to religion. And so she felt that if those two could not be happy apart, they should be happy together, in the name of all the joy there was in life. And while her brother lay face to the sky under the tamarisks, she kept trying to think of how to console him, conscious that she did not in the least understand the way he thought about things. Over the fields behind, the larks were hemming the promise of the unripe corn. The foreshore was painted all colours from vivid green to mushroom pink. By the edge of the blue sea, little black figures stooped, gathering sapphire. The air smelled sweet in the shade of the tamarisk. There was ineffable peace. And Barbara, covered by the network of sunlight, could not help impatience with a suffering which seemed to her so corrigible by action. At last she ventured. Life is short, Eustace. Milton's answer, given without movement, startled her. Persuade me that it is, Babs, and I'll bless you. If the singing of these larks means nothing, if that blue up there is a morass of our invention, if we are pettily creeping on, furthering nothing, if there's no purpose in our lives, persuade me of it, for God's sake. Carried suddenly beyond her depth, Barbara could only put out her hand and say, Oh, don't take things so hard. Since you say that life is short, Milton muttered with his smile, you shouldn't spoil it by feeling pity. In old days we went to the tower for our convictions. We can stand a little private roasting, I hope. Or has the sand run out of us altogether? Stung by his tone, Barbara answered in rather a hard voice. What we must bear, we must, I suppose. But why should we make trouble? That's what I can't stand. Oh, profound wisdom. Barbara flushed. I love life, she said. The galleons of the westering sun were already sailing in a broad gold fleet straight for that foreshore where the little black stooping figures had not yet finished their toil. The larks still sang over the unripe corn. When Harbinger, galloping along the sands from Whitewater to Sea House, came on that silent couple walking home to dinner. It would not be safe to say of this young man that he readily diagnosed a spiritual atmosphere, 
but this was the less his demerit, since everything from his cradle up had conspired to keep the spiritual thermometer of his surroundings at sixty in the shade. And the fact that his own spiritual thermometer had now run up so that it threatened to burst the bulb rendered him less likely than ever to see what was happening with other people's. Yet he did notice that Barbara was looking pale, and, it seemed, sweeter than ever. With her eldest brother, he always somehow felt ill at ease. He could not exactly afford to, to despise an uncompromising spirit in one of his own order, but he was no more impervious than others to Milton's caustic, thinly-veiled contempt for the commonplace. And, having a full-blooded belief in himself, usual with men of fine physique, whose lots are so cast that this belief can never, or almost never, be readily shaken, he greatly disliked the feeling of being a little looked down on. It was an intense relief when, saying that he wanted a certain magazine, Milton strode off into the town. The Harbinger, no less than to Milton and Barbara, last night had been bitter and restless. The sight of that pale, swaying figure, with the parted lips, whirling round in courtier's arms, had clung to his vision ever since the ball. During his own last dance with her, he had been almost savagely silent, only by a great effort restraining his tongue from mordant allusions to that prancing red-haired fellow, as he secretly called the champion of lost causes. In fact, his sensations there, and since, had been a revelation, or would have been if he could have stood apart to see them. True, he got about next day with his usual cool, off-hand manner, because one naturally did not let people see but it was with such an inner aching and rage of wanton jealousy as to really merit pity. Men of his physically big, rather rushing type are the last to possess their soul's impatience. Walking home after the ball, he determined to follow her down to the sea, where she had said so maliciously that she was going. After a second almost sleepless night, he had no longer any hesitation. He must see her. After all, a man might go to his own place with impunity. He did not care if it were a rather pointed thing to do. Pointed? The more pointed the better. There was beginning to be roused in him an ugly stubbornness of male determination. She should not escape him. But now that he was walking at her side, all that determination and assurance melted to perplexed humility. He marched along by his horse with his head down, just feeling the ache of being so close to her, and yet so far. Angry with his own silence and awkwardness, almost angry with her for her loveliness and the pain it made him suffer. When they reached the house, and she left him at the stable yard, saying she was going to get some flowers, he jerked the beast's bridle and swore at it for its slowness on entering the stable. He was terrified that she would be gone before he could get into the garden, yet half afraid of finding her there. But she was still plucking carnations by the box hedge, which led to the conservatories. And as she rose from gathering those blossoms, before he knew what he was doing, Harbinger had thrown his arm round her, held her as in a vice, kissed her unmercifully. She seemed to offer no resistance, her smooth cheeks growing warmer and warmer, even her lips passive. But suddenly he recoiled, and his heart stood still at his own outrageous daring. What had he done? He saw her leaning back, almost buried in the clipped boxed hedge, 
and heard her say with a sort of faint mockery, Well? He would have flung himself down on his knees to ask for pardon, but for the thought that someone might come. He muttered hoarsely, By God, I was mad, and stood glowering in sullen suspense between hardihood and fear. He heard her say quietly, Yes, you were, rather. Then, seeing her put her hand up to her lips as if he had hurt them, he muttered brokenly, Forgive me, Babs. There was a full minute's silence while he stood there, no longer daring to look at her, beaten all over by his emotions. Then, with bewilderment, he heard her say, I didn't mind it, for once. He looked up at that. How could she love him and speak so coolly? How could she not mind if she did not love him? She was passing her hands over her face and neck and hair, repairing the damage of his kisses. Now shall we go in? she said. Arbiter took a step forward. I love you so, he said. I will put my life in your hands, and you shall throw it away. At those words, of whose exact nature he hid very little knowledge, he saw her smile. If I let you come within three yards, will you be good? He bowed, and in silence they walked towards the house. Dinner that evening was a strange, uncomfortable meal. But its comedy, too subtly played for Milton and Lord Dennis, seemed transparent to the eyes of Lady Castaly. For when Harbinger had sallied forth to ride back along the sands, she took her candle and invited Barbara to retire. Then, having admitted her granddaughter to the apartment always reserved for herself, and specially furnished with practically nothing, she sat down opposite that tall, young, solid figure, as if it were taking stock of it, and said, So, you're coming to your senses at all events. Kiss me. Barbara, stooping to perform this rite, saw a tear stealing down the carved fine nose. Knowing that to notice it would be too dreadful, she raised herself and went to the window. There, staring out over the dark fields and dark sea, by the side of which Harbinger was riding home, she put her hand up to her lips and thought for the hundredth time. So that's what it's like. End of Part 2, Chapter 5